Thank you. Where's your team? You can go ahead and be seated. It's good to see you. Welcome to Crossroads Church today. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. If you're new with us, I get to be the senior pastor here. And uh, we're just delighted that you've decided to come on this chilly day and spend an hour uh, with us in the house. Uh, for all of you who are joining online, I want to welcome you as well. Today we are starting a brand new six-week sermon series on the end times. Uh, particularly, yeah, people are excited, I know. Uh, particularly uh, going through the book of Revelation. Now, as I jump into this today, I want you to know that I'm actually pretty excited uh, to do this sermon series, which is a really like marked improvement because I'm the guy who has not so subtly gone on record and said, I will never preach a Revelation series. Um, You know, Revelation just brings out like all the crazy in church. And um, however, it was this summer, um, every summer, the preaching team goes away for a couple of days and we pray and we think through what is it that we need to be preaching on this next year. And uh, Chris came up with this really dumb idea. He was like, hey, why don't we preach in the book of Revelation? And uh, bada boom, bada bing, here we are. And so um, (laughs) if you're excited for Revelation, just find Pastor Chris in the lobby and give him a high five. Like he's he's the reason we're doing it, all right? Um, All joking aside, all joking aside, in the last couple of weeks, as I've been preparing for this series, um, I have been growing in anticipation and excitement for this series, and um, that excitement has grown, but maybe not for the reasons uh, that you might think. Uh, one of the things that you need to know about me, and if you're a longtime uh, Crossroads person, this will maybe bring some clarity to you. Um, if this is like your first time at Crossroads, you're exploring the faith, you're exploring the church, um, this will certainly help you as you attend Crossroads. That when it comes to uh, my preaching, particularly kind of guiding principles of my preaching, one of the guiding principles comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. And that verse is where the Apostle Paul writes this, that we all with unveiled face, he's talking to believers here, um, the unveiled face you can think of in terms of like this, our faces have been unveiled. That is to say that we see Jesus, we know Jesus, we've trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that all of us who are in that area, our faces, our faces have been unveiled and we are beholding, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That is that as we are living our lives, it's as if we are looking into this mirror and the reflection on the other side is Jesus. That our faces have been unveiled, we're walking through, we have this mirror in front of us where the reflection there is Jesus. And because of that reflection, we are being transformed into that same image, that image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another, just as the Lord, the Spirit. The principle of that passage is this. That true life change, the true life change of a person's character comes from treasuring the unmatched power and majesty of Jesus. That is, as we behold the glory of Jesus, we are being transformed into his image. That we become like that which we treasure. You might have heard the saying that seeing is believing. The Apostle Paul goes, that's all great and good, but seeing is actually becoming that you become like that which you behold. You become like that which you focus on. You become that which you absorb within the depths of your being. Now, the implication for me as your senior pastor is if I aim us as a church to be transformed one degree to another, that is, to be more and more like Jesus, then I ought to, as your pastor, hold up Jesus for you to gaze upon week after week after week. See, my heart for this church is not that we would see Jesus as like moderately important. 
It's not that we would see Jesus as a component or an ingredient of our lives. In fact, when we open up the scriptures, the Bible speaks nothing of that. There's no, there's no understanding of that kind of uh, you know, uh, idea in the scriptures. That when we open the scriptures, what we find is that Jesus is life. He's not a component of life. He's not an ingredient of life. That Jesus is life itself. And my goal, my heart, is that if you're a part of this church, that you would absolutely be captivated by the beauty and the glory of God as we gaze together upon Jesus. And for that reason, I'm excited to enter into the book of Revelation, despite all the crazy that comes with it, because the book of Revelation helps us do that. The book of Revelation helps us see Jesus. Now, as I say that, one of the great frustrations that I have when it comes to the church and specifically when it comes to this book is that I believe that this book has been taken from us. It has been stolen from us by bad teaching. From movies in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid that was growing up that was just, you know, just awful about the end times to, I know this might offend some of you, but the bad theology of the Left Behind series, it just frustrates me to no end that more people have theology about end times based on a book series than the actual Bible. To pastors who have stood on stages like this one and proclaimed like weathermen the day that the end of the world would happen. In many ways throughout church history, at least in the last couple of hundred years, Revelation has not been used to help us gaze upon the beauty and love of Jesus, but rather to sow and breed a spirit of fear within us. To poison us as we look upon the future with dread and worry and anxiety. And yet the whole point of Revelation was not to bring distress, That God does not write us words. He does not give us words in the scriptures to bring about anxiety and worry into our lives. That the whole reason that Revelation was written is so that we might have hope. That that, uh, Revelation is consummation. It's it's celebration. That is is given so that we can see the Jesus who was crucified in the gospels is also the Jesus now and forever, the victorious king of the universe, so that we might have courage in the world in which we live. So that we might have courage in the things that we face in this world. I know for some of you, you're new, you're like, is he always this ramped up? Only in Revelation, all right? So just Six weeks, that's all it's gonna be, all right? So I just want you to know where we're gonna go for the next six weeks so that you kind of have a roadmap of where we're heading. Today, week one, I'm gonna do my very best to introduce you to this book. We're gonna talk through what apocalyptic literature is all about. We're gonna talk about the theme of this book, who it's written to, and why it was written to them. Then, next week, we're going to, in week two, we're gonna make it to the throne room. We're going to turn our attention to the heavenlies and we're going to enter into the throne room of God as we gaze upon the splendor of King Jesus. Week three, we're going to talk all about kind of the frequently asked questions that we're asked as pastors. So week three, we're going to talk about the 144,000. What is the millennium? Are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Doesn't matter. Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? All of those questions we're going to try to answer that week or at least address that week. Week four is all about the beasts, that one of the huge images in the scripture is of this character that is called and referred to as the beast. In our modern culture, we often refer to this person as the Antichrist. And just kind of a heads up, it may not be who you think it is, all right? Week five, 
One of the other images of Revelation is this of Babylon, this, this city of Babylon. We're going to talk through the significance of that and what it looks like for today. And then in week six, again, we're going to turn our attention to the heavenlies. And we're going to see in the heavenlies that when it comes to those of us who follow Jesus, that our deepest yearnings and desires will finally and be completely realized there in heaven. That's where we're going to go over these six weeks. Now, as we jump into this, I want you to know, and maybe you already feel this, that there is no way that we can cover the 22 books, uh, 22 chapters of Revelation in six weeks. Like, we probably need 44 weeks to do it justice, but you can't handle me in Revelation for 44 weeks, all right? So here's what I'm going to tell you. Over these six weeks, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles and to read the book of Revelation, five chapters a week, all right? If you read five chapters a week, you will be caught up with where we're at in the sermons. You'll see the topics that we're going to be speaking on. And um, as you read that, I want to encourage you actually to grab a resource to read alongside it. You can grab any resource you want, but the one that we're going to recommend to you is a book by Tim Chester called Revelation for You. It's a pretty, pretty simple commentary that that speaks to the issues that we're going to talk about here. Um, there's a lot of good works on Revelation. This is the one that we've chosen for the church. Um, we've given it to all or had all of our small group leaders know about it. And so this is the resource that we are um, putting out there for you to get as you walk through the book of Revelation. We want to help you and walk with you in that, okay? So that's where we're going over these six weeks. So today, uh, we're going to begin with the introduction. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at the first couple of verses together as we begin to understand this book. Now, what you need to understand as we open this book is that this book is primarily a letter. It's just like Galatians or Ephesians or Romans. It is a letter written by the Apostle John to a group of churches. Now, you might be familiar with the Apostle John because the Apostle John is one of the 12 guys that ran with Jesus. He's one of the what we call the 12 disciples. He's also the guy that wrote one of the accounts of Jesus' life. That's what we call Gospels, right? Four guys wrote that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is who this is. This is the Apostle John. And he's writing in about 95 AD, so we're six decades past the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that John is most likely the last of the living disciples, and he's been imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus. He's been persecuted. He's been um, imprisoned because he has faith in Jesus. And probably because of his age, he was not beheaded or executed like maybe they would have thought to do, but rather he was sent to an island called Patmos. Patmos was a place where, Roman, where the Roman Empire sent their prisoners to kind of live out their last days. It's just a small island, six miles by 10 miles in the Agrarian Sea. And so uh, John is there. He's living out his last days there. And as he's living out his last days, God comes to him and gives him these words which are written to us in this letter of Revelation. It begins like this in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. When we speak about the book of Revelation in our English Bibles, it's titled for us Revelation to John, which is a nice English title. But the reality is, is that the first two verses are actually the title. Now, you know, 
it's a little bit overwhelming. That doesn't fit well on a cover, but technically that's the title of the book. And one of the things that I want you to notice is in the opening line that John gives. It's very important. He makes it very clear to every reader of all time that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that word revelation is the Greek word apocalyptus, which is where we get our English word um, uh, apocalyptic. And apocalyptic means to unveil, all right? It means to pull back the curtain. It, it means to disclose what is to come. This is why we call Revelation apocalyptic literature. Now, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, one of the things to know about it is that it's very heavy in imagery. That imagery is huge, which we're not really familiar with when it comes to the Western church. Western culture in general, that oftentimes when we sit down and read books or novels or, or things that we're interested in, there's a very logical progression to them. Apocalyptic literature is heavy, heavy, heavy with imagery. It's why we freak out and bring out all of our decoders, because we, we just don't understand it. Now, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, um, oftentimes people or characters are described as animals, okay? Uh, historical events are described as natural happenings like earthquakes or hurricanes. Numbers have significance. Even colors have significance. And the whole reason that this type of literature or genre exists is not just to inform our minds. It's not just so that we know more things, but actually so that it elicits passion within our souls. That the letter that John is writing is the unveiling of Jesus in a very graphic imagery so that our souls might be illicit with passion and that we might have courage, that we might have courage to see what is to come. Now, it's very important as we begin this series to notice what John does not say. He does not say that this is the unveiling of timelines. He doesn't say this is the unveiling of events. He does not say that this is the unveiling of, of charts. He doesn't say any of that. The primary purpose of this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ as the victorious king. Now, for those of us who have been around church world for a while, uh, you know, we understand that there's a lot of different opinions when it comes to end times theology, or what we would call eschatology in theological circles. There's a lot of varying opinions about how the end is all going to shake out. Like, how's it all going to work out? What's the timeline? Who's right? Who's wrong? What's going to happen? What's it going to look like? When's, when's the date? There's all these different theological camps, and the fact is, is that there's widespread disagreement in all of them. Each camp, claims, each camp claims to be the one with the right answers, that it's so clear, and everybody else is wrong. But let's just put it on the table. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the most godly biblical scholars have not been able to agree when it comes to this letter. And we would have to conclude that it's just simply not all that clear. That's what we have to conclude, that it's simply not all that clear. And for any one group to say that they have it all figured out, that they have it right, is a claim that goes far beyond what the scriptures can support. See, the only thing that we actually do know for sure is that we are in what the Bible calls the last days, that we are in the last days. We have verses like in Acts chapter 2, 17, where Luke writes these words to us, in the last days it shall be. 
God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This has already happened. That one of the great promises that we have as believers is that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust him as our Lord and Savior, that the Spirit of God dwells within us, that the Holy Spirit dwells upon us, that this has already happened, that we have 2,000 years of evidence to show that this is already the case, that if you are here today and you are a believer, you are the living, breathing testimony that we are, in fact, in the last days. We go to the book of Hebrews. And the writer in Hebrews begins his entire letter this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom uh, also he created the worlds. That when it comes to the scriptures, the question is, is, is are we in the lapsed days? You know, that's the title of the series, End Times. Are we there yet? According to the Bible, we are absolutely in the last days. And we have been since the birth of Jesus. The better question, maybe the more relevant question, is in light of everything that's going on in this world, in light of everything that we see and experience, in light of the wars that are taking place and the natural disasters that are happening, the better question is, are we on the verge of the Great Tribulation? Are we on the verge of what the Bible calls the great suffering? Are we on the verge of the end of really kind of the, the, the existence, the culmination of, of existence as we have known it? Are we there? And according to Jesus, here's what he had to say in Matthew 24. But uh, concerning that day, concerning that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, the great messengers of God, they don't know. Not even the Son, meaning Jesus himself, he's got no clue. But only the Father. Only the Father. See, in other words, are we on the verge of the great tribulation? Are we on the verge of, of the culmination of earth coming to an end as we, as we know it? The definitive answer from the Bible is maybe but only the Father actually knows for sure. Which is why it drives me so crazy to see well-meaning and godly pastors stand on a stage like this and point to a date. They don't know. Nobody knows. What we can say with absolute certainty is that when it comes to the New Testament's encouragement to eschatological watchfulness and courage, that it is not reserved for a special time at the end of history, but rather it is reserved for all time in the life of the church. That all of this is given so that we be, may be watchful and have courage as we live out our lives. Everything beyond that is unclear. And one of the convictions that I've developed over the years is when something in the Bible is unclear, it is unclear for a reason. In other words, God doesn't have a communication problem. What God wants to make clear, he is perfectly capable of making clear. And so what's unclear is unclear for a reason, and perhaps that reason is that God did not want us to do with this letter what we are so prone to do. And that is set up all of these timelines and charts and conspiracy theories. Like the COVID vaccine being the mark of the beast. Newsflash, it's not. All right? If you're worried about someone tracking you and what all of that means, they don't need to pump a vaccine into your blood. They already have a phone in your pocket. Right? 
Like, like think whatever you want about the COVID vaccine, whether it's good or bad for you or whatever. You can have whatever opinion you want, but it's not revelation. It's not. See, we're so prone and we get so distracted by our curiosity related to timelines and events and charts that we end up missing the main point of revelation. And that is that revelation is the unveiling of Jesus. And the challenge for us as we enter into this series and really over the course of the next several weeks is not to lose focus of that, to now allow ourselves to wander into the timelines and charts and conspiracy theories that come with it. Because as we read this, John actually gives us a promise in verse 3 when he writes to us these words, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John said this to the seven churches that are in Asia. Right here in verse 3, we have what is the first of seven beatitude statements in the book of Revelation. You might be most familiar with beatitudes from the Gospels, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gave his beatitudes. They went something like this, Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacekeepers, so on and so forth. Beatitudes, or this blessing that we read in English, is a Greek word that actually means to be happy. Happy is the one. And we're told that there is a promise here in Revelation. That as we read through the book of Revelation, we are going to come upon seven beatitude statements And you can find all of them because they all begin the same way. Blessed are the ones. Happy are the ones. In this case, blessed or happy, not anxious or fearful, but happy is the one who reads, who hears, who takes heed to what is being said. That as we read this over the next six weeks, there is a promise made to us by God that we will walk away from this blessed. That as we read this, we will will be filled with happiness. That this is, that this is the, the promise that is coming with the reading of this book, the listening of this book, the taking heed of this book. Now, specifically, this book is written to seven actual churches in what was called Minor Asia. Today, we would call it modern-day Turkey. And those seven churches were in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, uh, Tyatira, Sidiris, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, This is really important as we enter into this series on Revelation because what we have to understand is that Revelation, while it is written for us, it is not written to us. That's an important distinction. It's written for us, but it is not written to us. What we cannot do as we open these pages and begin to read these pages is we cannot assign things and read into Revelation what the first century people, the first century churches did not read into it. Let me say it another way. That when it comes to the book of Revelation, we cannot use our newspapers to interpret Revelation, but rather we need to use Revelation to interpret our newspapers. Make sense? That when we move into this, when we move, as we move into this, we have to realize that it was written for us so that we could see God's love, so that we could see his beauty, so that we would have hope and courage to face the things that we face in this world, but it was not written to us. 
See, as this letter is being written during this time in the church, the church was facing severe persecution from the Roman Empire. In about 60-ish AD, uh, the Emperor Nero came into power as the Roman Caesar. And immediately he began a pretty severe persecution, really a reign of terror towards the Christians and began to use Christians in sports, in the arenas, and so on and so forth. And the Christians, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed that Emperor Nero would pass and that a new emperor would come. And pretty soon their prayers were answered and Emperor Vespian came into power and he was actually worse than Emperor Nero. His great claim in church history is that he would dip Christians in oil, light them on fire in order to light the Roman roads. That during this time of history, Christians were persecuted, they were brutalized, they were imprisoned, they were fed to animals, they were executed. This is what the Bible means when it talks about persecution, when it talks about the the suffering of believers. Now today, at least in our country, let me take a quick rabbit trail. Today in our country, we are not really persecuted that our preferences might be infringed upon, there might even be a loss of liberty, but we're not truly being persecuted. And we have to be careful not to cheapen that language, to cheapen that word, especially in light of the anguish that many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus face all around this world. After Vespian came Emperor Domitian, and he declared that the Roman emperor is God that Caesar is God. He went so far in the Roman Empire to set up four temples of worship in the Roman Empire, and the expectation was is that anybody with means, anybody who had, who had economic ability, the expectation was that they needed to travel to one of those temples during their lifetime to offer praise and worship to Caesar. At the time of Revelation, as it is being written and penned by John on Patmos, it is not politically advantageous to declare that Jesus is Lord. It's not popular to declare Jesus as Savior. In fact, in most circumstances, it would get you brutally beaten, if not killed. And so you have these seven churches. All these churches are, are in the Roman Empire, and they have a choice. Do we stand on our faith and risk being brutally, brutally beaten, even executed because of our faith, or do we submit to Rome? And honestly speaking, the allure of Rome was quite seductive. I mean, the wealth, the the prosperity, the sexuality, the the power that came with with Rome. And so you have these churches, some of these churches are facing severe persecution, just holding on for for their dear life as they stand with Jesus, not caving into their oppressor's demand for loyalty, and other churches that are struggling as they are being slowly seduced into the ways of the Roman Empire, looking and going, you know what? I don't think Rome's that bad. Caesar seems like a pretty good guy. And so John begins to pen this letter on the island of Patmos, knowing, knowing that the one thing that every one of these churches needs is they need to hear the voice of Jesus. They need to know that this is a cause worth dying for, and if it's a cause worth dying for, then it is a kingdom worth living for. And that's the essence of what we call biblical prophecy. See, as Americans, when we hear prophecy, immediately our minds begin to jump to the things that are in the future. And certainly there's some of that here in the book of Revelation, but more so when we talk about prophecy in the Bible, what it means is a word from God. 
a word from God. And that's exactly what we have here in this letter, is that this, this is a letter from John, is a word from God to the people of these seven churches to see Jesus in order that they might have courage to face what it is that they're facing in their worlds. And so as we read through Revelation, as we read through this, this you know, literature, this genre, this, this prophecy, we have to realize that as we read through this, that, that we're looking through a series of windows, all right? That John is inviting us to look through a series of windows. And as we look through these windows, it's not always linear. That one chapter doesn't build you know, on the next chapter, like, like there's nothing that's happened. There's no building that's going on from chapter to chapter. There's nothing really here that's sequential. Let me give you an example. That in uh, Revelation chapter 12, dead center in the middle of the letter, all kinds of crazy things have already taken place. We've already been shown in the windows. We get to Revelation chapter 12, and we have this depiction of this woman who is pregnant with a male child. And as she's giving birth, we're told that there's another character who's this red dragon who's flying around looking to devour the child and that the woman takes her child and runs off to a, to a faraway place and she's there for over 1,200 days seeking refuge as the dragon tries to devour her child. This is our, this is our glimpse into apocalyptic literature. This is a clear allusion to Jesus' birth some 90 years before the letter was written. It's not sequential. It's not linear. It doesn't build from one chapter to another. That as we walk through this letter together, we are going to be not so concerned about looking into the future about what is to come, but rather our focus is on what does John see in this window? What does John see that unveils Jesus that gives us courage and that is a blessing to people? particularly people who are being persecuted. Because the unveiling of this Jesus is pretty amazing. John doesn't take too long. By verse 5, he already begins to give us a picture of who this Jesus is. As we begin in Revelation chapter 1, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That right from the beginning, John wants us to know that this letter, this prophecy, is from the Godhead himself. That this is from what we call the Trinity. That this, this one who is and who was and who is to come, that's an allusion to the Father. Next up, we have this seven spirits. This is our first, you know, toe dipping into apocalyptic literature. Remember, numbers have meaning. Seven is significant. Seven in the scriptures is completion. It's perfection. That this is the perfect spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. That's what it's referring to. And then, of course, the third person that you have here is Jesus. And he's referred to us as this faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the king of the world. All three of these are significant. When we're reading through this, we see that Jesus is this faithful witness, and it's a reference to his incarnation. That is, that Jesus came into this world so that we might see and know who God is. And as we live through this world, facing both the struggle and the seduction that this world brings to us, that we are to pattern our lives after Jesus. That we live faithfully as he lived faithfully. Remember 2 Corinthians, that we're moving... As we, as we gaze upon Jesus, we are moving one degree by another, becoming more like him. 
that we are, that we are living our lives as a, as, as a faithful witness, as a testimony to the truth, just as he testified to the truth. And for those who were living this way in the Roman Empire, it meant to put your life and your family's life at risk. As we saw, to, to follow Jesus came with huge costs that very often ended in brutality and even death. And John begins to sit down and he begins to write this letter. And he's not writing this letter in such a way that he's saying, hey, Christians, have courage because in 2000, 3000, 4000, how many ever years down the road, everything's going to be fine? That doesn't help anybody. That doesn't, that doesn't bring peace as you're watching your family get beheaded. Saying everything's going to be good one day doesn't bring peace as you watch your friends being hauled off to jail. That doesn't bring courage. They need courage for today. And so John says, look, man, Jesus, he's the firstborn of the dead. What he's referring to here is Jesus' death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection, that Jesus wants the people of these churches to know that death is not the end. That all of this life is just momentary affliction before we enter into glory, into the presence of God, where everything is made right. So John looks at the Christian and says, look, man, you can have courage. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, and everyone who believes in him will be reborn in this life, will be reborn new life in this way. And then John goes on, and he tells us that, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is an incredibly strong statement that's probably lost on most of us today. See, in Roman culture, Caesar was the ruler of the kings of the earth. That when the Roman Empire moved in and laid siege to a territory, eventually overtaking it, what they would do is not send leaders from Rome to rule this area. No, in fact, what they would do is after they laid siege, they would find leaders within the community and they would put them in positions of leadership and they would make them Roman citizens with all the power and the privilege that came with that. So that at the end, all of these local leaders would be accountable to Rome. That all of these local leaders, these rulers, these kings would owe their allegiance to Rome. That in the Roman world, Caesar was the ruler of the kings of the earth. And John comes in like a wrecking ball and he writes these churches who need courage and says, you need to hear and see Jesus. They need to know that living for Jesus is worth it. And John uses not only the language of the day, but he goes all the way back into the Old Testament into Psalm 89, where the psalmist writes these words as a prophecy. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 36, his offspring, next slide, his offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. See, John, in defiance of Rome, goes, remember church, Caesar ain't it. Jesus is the king of the rulers of this world, that he is the true and ultimate king, and all, all of the rulers are subject to him. Verse 6, this faithful witness, firstborn king of the worlds, John says it's to him who loves us. It's to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
And it's Jesus who has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be all the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And there's one thing that I want you to take away from this sermon today is that this Jesus, he loves you. That he paid for your sins by his blood. Caesar ain't doing that. The rulers of this world, they're not doing that. I don't know where you see yourself or how you see yourself. I don't know what you think about God or understand about God or, or even what God wants from you. But here King Jesus is looking at you and saying, man, I love you. And you know that deepest, darkest part of your soul, of your life that you don't want anyone else to know about? I paid for that. I paid with my blood that you might be forgiven. It's this amazingly stark contrast where Caesar demanded praise and worship, where, where Caesar sought the submission. King Jesus comes in and goes, let me lay down my life. Let me lay down my life. And what you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, particularly as we step into the throne room next week, it is just absolutely awesome. I mean, it just gives me goosebumps even thinking about it. I want you to know that as we read through this, you're invited into this. That you are invited into this. That you repent of your sins, that you surrender your life to Jesus, and you are right in the middle of all this stuff that we're going to be talking about. That you're wrapped up in the victory, that this is your ultimate reality, that King Jesus is victorious. That the schemes of the enemy will be put down, that everyone in this world and in the universe will bow down in worship, and your king is calling you into that today. And the question is, is, is will you respond? is will you respond? See, Jesus, he died and paid for your sins so that you might know what it looks like to walk in relationship with him. If you're interested in having a conversation about what that looks like, I'm just gonna invite you to text the name of Jesus to 720-513-1933. All right, so it begins. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we open up this book that is complicated, Lord, that's full of imagery at times that we don't understand, that we find ourselves so easy chasing conspiracy theories and timelines and trying to figure out things that, I, that I'm not sure you ever intended us to try to figure out. But Lord, at the end of the day, you, you gave this book so that we would see you, Jesus. So that we would see you not just as the crucified Savior, but also as the victorious King. And so, Lord, as we walk through this, I pray that that would be our focus. Jesus, that our eyes would be set upon you. Lord, that as we come and we read this book, that it would not elicit in us fear. There is no room for a spirit of fear when we walk with you but rather that we would realize that you've given to this to us so that we would have courage. God, I pray for those of us in this room, Lord, who need to hear from you. Truth be told, we're probably not that much different than the seven churches that this, that this letter is written to. Walking in this life, 
Some days struggling to maintain faith, other days seduced by the ways of this world. And the one thing that we need is to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. And as we hear, as we listen, as we take heed, that our lives would truly be blessed and that we would be happy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together today around communion, realizing that it is our victorious king that began, began his, his reign over this earth, not on a throne, but actually on a cross, where his body was broken so that our sins might be healed. And so today we eat and we remember what our King did on our behalf. And that it's through the kingly blood of Jesus that the brokenness of our lives, the sins, well, they're healed. And so today we drink in honor of our King. As we continue in our time, if you need prayer, uh, we would love to pray alongside you online. You can click the button in-house. You can make your way to the banner. We'll have people there to pray alongside with you. If you're in-house, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing some songs today right out of the book of Revelation. You may or may not know this, but the book of Revelation has the second most worship songs as any book in the entire Bible. Only the Psalms has more worship songs. And so today we stand and we sing, declaring Jesus as the King as we begin to prepare our hearts for what God is asking us to enter into through the course of this series together.